As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. Japan MotoGP 2022. For you, was it the standout first victory of the 2022 season that Jack Miller took? Or was it the troublesome eighth position that championship leader Fabio Quattararo got throughout the weekends of a limited dry running? Maybe the mess that championship chaser Peko Banyaya got himself into by throwing it into the gravel on the last lap. It was an embarrassing standout as Ducati go from shall we have team orders to our main man Bindit as he lunged from ninth to what could have been eighth. Paddock Underdogs Aprilia made a bit of a mistake on the grid and left an outlap setting on Alicia Spargaro's bike, meaning he had to leap onto the spare at the end of the warm-up lap, leaving him to start from pit lane and ultimately score nothing when the barn door was left wide open. Or was it seeing Marc Marquez back on a pole position? A wet pole at that... But after nearly 1,100 days since the last, it's been great to see. We've got all sorts of things to discuss. Simon Patterson, Valentin Harunchi, join me, Toby Moody, as we make sense of it all. But the bottom line is that Quattararo was the one with the coolest head and turned a 10-point lead to an 18-point lead in the title chase with 100 points still on the table. That's how I look at it. How do you look at it, Val? Yeah, exactly the same. Exactly the same. I don't. I don't think he had much business going away from this weekend with a with a championship lead increased by almost double. Uh, and it like, it didn't look pretty even during the race because I think we all felt that at some point uh, Bastianini was going to switch on and then Bagnaia was going to switch on and they were going to gobble him up the way Miller gobbled up opposition at turn 11 over and over and over again and it didn't quite happen fabio i think had a really a really weird race by standards because even when he was briefly in clean air he didn't look very fast at all and considering that he says he didn't have major front tire pressure issues just you just wonder if it's just a general lack of pace although it seemed pretty decent in friday practice so in in that sense getting away with 
an extra eight points over Peko is it's huge. It's 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 really big, especially given how the previous five races have gone. I think uh, speaking to so whenever we spoke to Quadraro after the race, he was quite relieved, and he, he kind of didn't really go into too much in the way of like detail about what had gone so wrong. But I think the the most interesting comments at the end of the day came from Cal Kurtzlow. Um, because he was bemoaning the fact that he also had really, really good pace, but just couldn't get past people. And I think there was a, an element of that with Quartararo as well. I think he lost most of his time uh, trying to find a way past Maverick Vinales in front of him and just couldn't do it, because this is probably the one circuit where more than anything that horsepower disadvantage that the current Yamaha is at really, really really penalizes them because they come out of so many slow corners here and it's not the top speed it's the acceleration where they're struggling so um he was just unable to overtake anyone uh and as a result just couldn't go forward um and i think they kind of realized that was going to be an issue and as a result of that they they leave very very happy from uh from yamaha's home race the, the the point that gives me pause is it, it didn't feel like he was particularly close to anybody during the race, if that makes any sense. Like when you watch somebody like Vinales in a race try to find a way past or when you, I don't know, in the Moto2 race, watch the Gusto Fernandez try to work his way past Alonso Lopez, hounding him at every corner, you know, basically desperately trying to find some silly way around the outside that's never going to work. Um, Fabio, I guess... I'm guessing it's a decision that he can't really afford to do that because there's no point because most of his race, I think you're right, it was two stages. The first stage was um, just dropping back and getting passed by Luca Marini. And then the second stage was getting, uh, did he get passed by Marini or was he already behind? It doesn't matter. But the second part was indeed following Vinales, but never really getting particularly close to anything. But as he put it after the race, not only did I not overtake, I didn't even get to try. So, in in that regard, given how hopeless and not fun that race with, was for him, it's it's a real gift to come out of it with a a doubled points lead, basically, real gift. I wonder if uh, maybe he was aware of where. Well, we know he was aware of where Bagnaya and Espargaro were behind him. Um, and he he knew that if he did get close enough to someone to risk an overtake, it would also risk putting that front tire pressure up through the roof. And, and that's whenever it gets really risky, whenever you start to lose front feeling. So I wonder if he just, he'll never say it, but I wonder if that was a race where he was just managing championship expectations and would have been happy to have finished it, having conceded maybe one or two points to Bagnaya which looked like the the kind of the worst case scenario for him with well with with one lap to go that looked like the worst case scenario yeah coming off a non-score of course he just needed something he needed something uh he will have known that Alicia Spargaro was at the back he will have known that Banyaya was behind him and ultimately he actually heard Banyaya crashing behind him on the on the hairpin double left behind the behind the pits on that last lap uh, quite what Banyai was doing, taking all the risks just for one point, is is beyond me. Is beyond me. What a difference a week a week is in uh, in MotoGP as as we're on the other side of the planet between uh, the discussions that the world and the press office are having about about Ducati. Um, I have a theory, 
and it's a it's a theory I'm only maybe fifty percent on board with, but it's a theory nonetheless. Um, when your manufacturer doesn't give you the points that are on the table, you have to go out and try to get them yourself. So there were five points available easy at Aragon with some race manipulation. Easy for Banyaya, not easy for Ducati in terms of PR, but easy for Banyaya. Those five points did not go into his wallet. And so perhaps he's felt the pressure to outrace Quartararo to not, maybe not even so make up, but just knowing that he'll have to, he'll have to do it by himself. He'll have to get this done over himself. And maybe there was a feeling that beating Quartararo here in this kind of race where he's weak would be a psychological blow of sorts. Maybe I'm just overthinking it. He just wanted to pass his rival up ahead. That's, that's probably it. Uh, any case didn't work. It was, uh, <laughs> was not good. It was a really, really bad mistake uh, from a rider who stamped them out for a bit. But lucky him that the run was so good that it's a mistake he could afford. But it's, it's the only one he can. That's it. We're, we're done. Rest of it has to be perfect, basically, from here on out. See, I, I don't think that um i don't think he was thinking too much per se because what we've historically seen from peko is that he has moments where he stops thinking on track and does something really dumb and stupid um and i think it's fair to say that we've tried this year in the podcast to give him the benefit of the doubt and, and say that you know that sort of tendency to make dumb mistakes that essentially in the end cost him the title last year by, by crashing out of a race win at Mizano. We kind of presumed that he'd put that behind him this year. And then he went and did something really rash and stupid that I think was just a, a mistake without thinking about a mistake. Um, he did not need to pass Fabio Quartararo right away because everything we've just said about why Quartararo had such a tough day, that slow acceleration out of, out of slow speed corners, he would have absolutely zapped him you know, a couple of corners later if he'd waited and thought about it. But he got behind him and just went, ah, ah, pass, pass, pass. And, and yeah, cleared away from him. I think maybe the only thing, to give him a little bit of credit, maybe the only little bit thing that he was thinking about was he was trying to put a bike between him and uh, Enea Bastianini. Uh, and that's then arguably whenever there is a conversation about team orders comes into things. He was trying to be defensive by going on the offensive and, and putting a blocker in between the person he was most afraid of being able to pass him in the last lap. Yeah, I, I didn't think of that, but that's actually that's a really good point because when you think last lap threat, Enea is it, and Enea showed in the race that he's not too interested in playing nice and taking it easy, that he'll take the points that are available from Peko or anybody else. Uh, it's a question to Ducati, again, not... But he, what 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 Pecker did say that he tried to try to dispatch with Fabio as soon as possible to go after Maverick, but that was not happening. The, the gap was a little bit too big. I, I can't really see how that was particularly possible, but I can understand how in the heat of the last lap you would you would think it maybe is. I, you know, as far as benefit of the bat goes, it did like finish in the top two in the five races before that. I'm I'm fairly forgiving when you have a run like that. I think in most in most seasons, you can afford to do something like this every six races if the rest of the six races are basically pitch perfect. But there's a hole that he dug himself into at the start of the season and he's basically dug himself out. But it means the room for error that would normally be there isn't really there. It was there for Fabio. It's not really there for Pecco. 
I think he's still not, he's not in huge trouble yet. 18 points. If he wins the, the last four races, he's champion, whatever happens. I mean, that's a, a, it's in his hands, which, which is, I think, meaningful. But, but he's not going to win Phillip Island, for instance. But, but when you get on a plane and you, and you go to four Asian flyway races and you bin it on the first one and you're in hotel rooms and you're on aircraft and you're not going home and you're surrounded by the warm, fuzzy feeling of base, home, um, all you do on these flyway races, and as Simon knows, all you do is MotoGP for, for four weeks. There's nothing else in your life. And it's even more so with the races. So it's just going to be that worm in the back of his mind that um, – hopefully doesn't eat away at, 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 Peck, at the back of Banyaya's mind too much. Uh, the cold facts are, unfortunately for Banyaya, 16 races in, crashed in five. You ain't going to win a world championship doing that. Yeah. And, and there will be a claim that not all of those crashes have been his fault, but equally there have been crashes where he's taken other people out with him, which... Kind of bad. Not not another title contender. Don't get me wrong, but you know he's he's not been the innocent victim of five people's mistakes this year, has he? No, no. no. The recent, I I think he deserves credit for the recent run still, and I I don't think he's I don't I think he's more reliable than he used to be. But still, you know, when this kind of thing shows up, it's natural to to ask questions, to to look at it, and to have doubts, and to I think it will be natural for him too to have a bit of doubt over whether whether he's letting his best chance go to waste with mistakes like that. It, just, it didn't need to be an eight-point swing, did it? I mean, just didn't need to be that. And here we are. It's, it's such a different character that we've seen today from Banyaya compared to winning in Assen, Silverstone, Red Bull Ring, Mizano, second last week in Aragon. And then he goes and does that. It's just... It is the proverbial Jekyll and Hyde, isn't it? And, and his character all weekend has been quite different um, with things going against him a little bit. He's been quite vocal and outspoken in his uh, his unhappiness with Ducati, which is not something we've heard. It's not even something we heard at the start of the year, actually, whenever the new bike wasn't really up to scratch yet. Um, you know, he was always sort of quite a moderating tone then about, you know, we know that this is a new project, we know that things will be better, blah, blah, blah. He's this weekend saying straight up, the bike is, this is not acceptable, the bike is not working in the wet, it's not good enough, you know. That 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 is not something we've heard from him this year before. A team orders in the back of his mind, Simon? Is there something going on? It's becoming more and more apparent that there are not the factory orders that we thought there were at Ducati, or if there were, that they're not really being given much heed by uh, a certain satellite team. Um, there was a, a clip of Davide Tardazzi in the garage, the early stages of, of the race, where just after Bastianini had put a quite aggressive overtake on, uh, on Bagnaia, uh, Tardazzi had cut a shot of Tardazzi in the garage. He looked furious and he then sort of stormed out of the garage. Uh, it turns out he stormed straight to the Grassini pit wall box to give them a bit of of what he felt about that overtake. Um, and yeah, it, it you know we saw an aggressive overtake from 
from uh, Bagnaya's 2023 teammate. We saw Bagnaya essentially forced to make a similarly aggressive overtake back on Bastianini at the end of the race. And then we saw him crashing out with Bastianini breathing down his neck, um, which is not something the Ducati team order should be doing really at this point, is there? It's, it's, it's strange how this situation came to be. And again, it is worth saying that at no point in any public address of Pecos, including this weekend and including any other weekend, has there been any clamoring for team orders. And in fact, on Thursday, he said, I do not need them to win this title, which looked more realistic then than it does now. But, you know, whatever. I, I genuinely believe that he believes that. And I honestly, I have no reason to doubt his earnestness in not wanting help. And he's not said anything negative about how Enea Bastinini has raced him. But the fact is that Bastinini is putting him under extra pressure. And the fact is that Ducati will not tell him to stop. Um, we've seen, so what I found really interesting is when, if you watch that race, you notice a point before sort of Bagnaia finds the rhythm, you notice the point where Bastianini passes him with that aggressive turn 10 pass. And then the next guy after him is Marco Bezecchi. And you get the feeling that Bezecchi also has the pace to, to do it, to get it done on Bagnaia. The Bagnaia is really struggling. And speaking to media post-race, Bezecchi did in fact confirm that he felt he had the pace to, to put a move on Bagnaia. But thought about it and decided, I'll just, I'll just stay behind him. Don't really, don't really need this. And I think that's what that's what Ducati wants from everybody in its stable. But it's it it doesn't want the PR hit of asking. It wants every single rider to just decide that on its own, on their own. And the the problem there is that, of course, Marco Bezzecchi, like Bagnaia, is a Valentino Rossi protege, so they're good friends. They, you know, they train together, they work together, they're on the same wavelength. And Bastianini in that regard is an outsider who also wants to assert himself over Bagnaia as his future teammate. So it's you can have your cake and eat it too with Bezecchi, but not with everybody. And look, I, as I think, I don't know if you've noticed it, Simon, but I've, I've caught some social media grief over mentioning the team orders thing over and over again as uh, sort of the the in, intimation that it's it's the journalists that are pushing this topic much like with rider unions before i don't look i don't know if that's true or not i maybe i guess i don't think ducati likes talking about it very much but you'd have you'd have to be you'd have to be blind not to see how bastianini is complicating this title campaign for Banyaya. it is an objective fact it is the truth like if ducati doesn't want to acknowledge that truth we will (laughs) and and let's put it this way i spoke to every every team boss i spoke to this weekend raised the subject with me not the other way around so it's not fair to say that this is something that's being led by the journalists just because we may or may not be the ones that are reporting on what people are telling us um i I spoke to a few people this afternoon after the race and we discussed a few topics and they kind of helped me form a theory about why we're seeing what we're seeing from Bastianini right now, actually. Um, And it makes complete sense to me. Essentially, he can still win the championship. That is still mathematically possible, although it's unlikely, but it, it is quite mathematically possible that he can finish top three in the championship. That's that's not that big an ask. Now, 
we know that Ducati pay small salaries, big bonuses. There is a seven-figure lump sum, I'm sure, if he finishes top three in the championship. Why would he feel any need to concede anything to Peko Bagnaya when he's essentially fighting him for that spot if Ducati haven't come along and offered him a seven-figure payout yeah. to back off? No, that's very easily resolved, isn't it? If, if that is the case, it is. That's very easily resolved yeah. with a big check. Yeah. But he's managed by he's managed by Carlo Pernat, who is the most uh, cunning old hand when it comes to rider management in the MotoGP paddock. And I can absolutely imagine Pernat sitting down in front of Paolo Ciabatti and Davide Tardazzi and Gigi Deligna saying, we will absolutely let Paco ride away from us every weekend once you sign the check. Exactly. What's in it for me? Money in the account, then we'll talk. Then we'll talk. But right now, they're, they're not just... This is not a case of Jack Miller versus Paco Bagnaia, where... Uh, Miller has no threat to him. They, you know, they're not fighting each other for anything. Bagnaia and Bastianini still have at least one eye in the same price. And that's a problem of Ducati's own making. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll. Less work, more clean. Terms apply. Running away, literally. With the victory at Mategi, Jack Miller aboard the factory Ducati, he, well, clicked it into top gear, and that was the last that anybody ever saw of his number 43 between then and the end of the 24 laps. He eventually won the race by three and a half seconds. I'm surprised it wasn't about seven, which is gargantuan in this day and age of MotoGP. Was the lack of running something to do with it, do you reckon, Val, or was it just the right tyre, or do you think Aspargaro would have given him a bit of a run, as Aspargaro, we will hear about in a minute, says? Uh, Aspargaro thinks he would have. I'm I'm really not convinced. Uh, In in terms of lack of running, it's hard to say, because I guess Jack does sort of hit the ground running sometimes, but I don't, you know, it's just, I think it's just the track and the, the package that he had clicked with him. And you say you expected it to be about seven seconds. I think it would have been about six if he didn't pop a massive wheelie over the line and just, you know, screw about for the final lap. Absurdly dominant win. is by far Jack Miller's best MotoGP race by a very comfortable margin. And the kind of race that not only was I not particularly confident that he can do in MotoGP, but as Jack repeatedly admitted in various media appearances after the race, he was not confident he could have done. But it was, I mean, it, was, it was just perfect. It was just perfect. It was such a such an 
I don't want to say on Miller because that's a that's a really harsh thing to say, but in terms of how it turned around, you know, he wasn't so good in the pure wet where you normally would expect Jack to be one of the top ones. I guess he didn't have his exact ideal sort of drying track conditions, but in the dry, he was just on his own, really completely unmatched. Already on Friday, I guess you could see that he would have he topped the sole session. He would have topped it by more if he didn't get caught up behind Suzuki Tester Takayatsuda on his fastest lap. And then on Sunday, just like he could have won by seven if he needed to win by seven. He was much faster than everybody else. He was overtaking with no trouble whatsoever to, to walk through his overtakes. Uh, Zarco out of turn two, Vinales aggressively turn five, two bikes into turn 11, then another bike into turn 11, then another bike into turn 11. So that's two laps and three corners, or two laps and sorry, 11 corners, and the lead from seventh on the grid without a particularly great getaway off the line. And then gone. It was, it was absolutely fantastic. It was, uh, it's, it was not, I would say it was like, it was a win we more associate with his teammate Banyaya, but I, I'm, not, I'm not even sure I've seen Banyaya do something like this. It's really good. And you expect, you know, Jack normally to run out of pace towards the end a little bit, and that never happened even a little bit. He was perfect. He was phenomenal. He he did admit towards the end that if he'd had to fight with someone, he might have been in a world of trouble because there wasn't much left in the tires. But he'd done such a good job by that point that there was no need to ever even think about it. Um, yeah, it's not the sort of victory we I ever thought we'd see from Miller because he's a scrapper. He, he's not a someone that leads from start to finish, but it was beautifully done. You know, credit to him for that. Yes, it was Lorenzo-esque, really, wasn't it? And yeah, how fitting it is it that the irony of Jack Miller now taking away the uh, race lap record from Jorge Lorenzo that unbelievably has stood for eight years. <laughs> oh, goodness me. 2014, long time ago. Uh, Aleish Aspargaro aboard the factory Aprilia. What a whole world of pain and everything that he's gone through today. Um, we'll go into the the, the 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 details of it right now, but I have to say this: the mechanic that made the mistake with the settings on the bike, all he could do was say, "Don't worry, mate. I'll give you a hug. We've all just got to move on to Thailand." I mean, it's the only thing you can do, isn't it? It would be the only thing that a rider would be able to do in any circumstance. But let's not forget that this is the rider that threw away nine points earlier this year because he didn't read his pit board. There has to be a little bit of Alicia Spagaro's mind that knows tonight that he can't be too angry about this because everyone makes mistakes and God knows he's made his this year as well. Um, so it, it sounds, I spoke to team boss Massimo Revola afterwards as well as speaking to Alish, and it, it sounds like um, they have a special map that they only use for sighting laps which limits the bike to 100 kilometers an hour. It's designed, Revilla told me, to save every gram of fuel possible because marginal gains, saving every little bit everywhere you can because everyone's always on the limit. That map then has to be basically switched off using a laptop connected to the bike in the grid, and someone didn't do that. Yeah. Um, it's a mistake. Mistakes happen. It was human error. So, so both... Spagaro and Rivola, when I asked, said it wasn't necessarily anything to do with the current calendar, but I'm not entirely sure about that because, simply put, everyone in Aragon stays an hour away from the circuit and has to do that drive both ways each day. 
then we fly to here where everyone stays an hour away from the circuit and has to do that drive each day. It's long days here. It's tiring. Everyone's jet lagged. And, you know, that increases the chance of mistakes. So maybe it didn't play a role. Maybe I'm wrong. Maybe it did. We'll never really know. But either way, mistake happened. And, you know, speaking to Rivola, what has made Rivola such a smart operator at Aprilia is that he was immediately very, you know, matter of fact, it happened. We now have to determine if our procedures for the start of the race are too complicated. We need to go and find someone who thinks like an airline pilot to write a triple redundancy checklist so that this never happens again. But we also go have to go away and look at how we manage the entire start procedure of the bike to make sure it's not too complicated to remove the number of items on that ch- triple checked checklist as well. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't really know what else the team could do in the circumstance other than, you know, put in a triple lock to make sure it never happens again because it happened. Uh, Alesh believed that he would have been able to win the race, um, which is traditional rider psyche. Rivala believed that he would be able to finish on the podium in the race, which is a lot more realistic. Um, but either way, they threw away double-digit points today. So it's a you know it's a young team. It's a team that's new to this level of competition in MotoGP, and sort of you know it's a team that's obviously partly new, I guess, after the Grishini split. So it's it's gonna happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the timing sucks. It really sucks, and it really hurts. And as as Aleish put it, um, I get, Aleish put it: if Fabio and Pecco finished one and two. It would be better for the championship. Uh, it would be worse for the championship, but it would feel better. But because they both had clangers, um, Aleish is like, you know, it's not so often that I'm just much quicker than both. And that was the case today. And it, I, I think it was. Yeah, I think that was that's probably accurate. Yeah. So, you know, if he finishes third or fourth, he's right there. He's right in the thick of the title fight that suddenly. And instead, he's 25 points off. It's not over, but... When you're Aprilia in this sort of stage of the championship, I think you need to maximize every points opportunity. And this is one they've really not maximized, if you see what I mean. So I think it was Esther Real and Ben Spee's works Yamaha days, but there is they when they changed the tires on the grid, they used to put one of those medical clips on the brake pipe that would stop the flow of brake fluid down to the caliper. And they then changed everything. And, of course, he started the warm-up lap, and this thing was still attached. So he had to come back into the pits, and he lost his slot and pit lane start and everything. Uh, so what Yamaha do now, they they well, not they still do it, but then from going on from there, they put one of those red aviation remove-before-flight tags on. Uh, and also... Uh, David Coulthard, he started a Monaco Grand Prix with things stuck in the side pods of the McLaren that were there to keep heating the engine. But of course, once he got going, there was no through flow of air. Was it DC? Was it Jensen? I can't remember. And of course, it blew the engine up in like half a lap because it had no cooling whatsoever. It's happened before. It'll happen again. But Val, your 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 particular English word is fantastic. A clanger and the wrong time to do it. I have to give him credit for one thing. 
Um, it says a lot about Alicia Spigaro's complete and utter commitment that he got into pit lane on his number one bike and just crashed it because it was quicker than getting off it. Mm, yeah. like, there's a certain amount of commitment there because that could have backfired. It, like the airbag could have fired in his sit. That that could have actually, you know, didn't even think about it. Well yeah, played. Yeah. Fair play to that one. I did notice that the, the brake master cylinder, it didn't even have the little sweat band on it. The little Brembo sweatband yep. on it, so you could see the fluid. You could see the fluid around swishing around, and and of course, to be fair, that bike was only going to get used if it was a wet part of the race. You were there, Simon. I don't think. I don't think. I don't think it was there was there was even two hundred percent chance of rain. I think what that bike was set up for was uh, a red flag because they had the soft tire in it, yeah, and then I that understand. was the problem. That was the reason he couldn't make more progress because he could basically only use the medium rear and the soft just started to fall apart on him. Um, a few people who experimented with the soft Michelin over the weekend were complaining that it was actually starting to fall apart in the center of the tire in the straights because of all the, the upright acceleration out of those slow corners. Um, and there was a few others, uh, I think... Uh, Mark Marquez used the soft rear, I think. In the race, yes, he did. Vinales said that he probably should have used the soft rear, but Alicia's yes. a lot bigger and a lot heavier, and and it just wasn't working for him, and that was the problem. But yeah, I think what we saw there was a bike that was probably not set up for rain, set up for uh, a quick restart. For Mark, it really worked. It really, really worked. Yeah, yeah. it really worked for him. Like it, it worked to the point where he could overtake for fourth place with two laps to go a rider who i don't remember what miguel was on but it was not the soft rear so no, it really it was worked. medium i think the, the yeah. ktm guys said they couldn't use the hard rear yeah but brad binder did say that it was his crew chief who said take this tire take this tire you've got to believe in it remember they only had 20 minutes of dry warm-up on sunday morning everything else was wet and he came out with the third ktm podium from the entire year. And this, during the first time on a big bike at Mategi. Yeah. Yeah. Well, same goes for Jorge Martin on the podium too. So also impressive. But yeah, Brad's... Because honestly, for much of the weekend, I felt this was one of those relatively rare 2022 weekends where Miguel actually had the upper hand. And yet, in the end, it's a fairly familiar result. Miguel drove a... Drove. Miguel rode... A decent race um but oh wow yeah i'm sorry f1 MotoGP double duty they're currently an f1 break so you'd think i wouldn't do stuff like this but yeah anyway yeah miguel rode a, a decent race apparently there was some unseen contact between uh miguel and brad when if you watched on tv you would have seen just miguel suddenly lose a position and what happened there was apparently he ran a bit wide in turn one and then got sort of forced out wide by brad who didn't didn't yeah, yeah. I asked him about it afterwards. There was a bit of contact between them. Miguel was completely cool with it. He said, you know, this is racing. These things happen. It yeah. wasn't a major thing. It just dropped him back a little bit, cost him a few tenths. Yeah. And Brad was fairly apologetic because he just didn't know that, that Miguel was there. And anyway, we didn't see it. It doesn't, doesn't sound like anything too dramatic happened. The dramatic part that happened is that Binder was again ahead and then managed to reel in and pass Martin. And look, we're going to do a top 10 thing at the end of this season. I think I have my top five, but I, I don't know the order. And every weekend like this is just a nightmare. And like, where where am I going to... Are there really, like, say, four riders in MotoGP better this year than Brad Binder? I don't know. I am really not sure. So, bah. 
it's another really, really good race by him. And look, uh, Jack this weekend showed a reason to believe that he'll hold his own against Brad next year. But Brad showed a reason to believe that it's going to be the, the, the toughest challenge of his MotoGP career of Jack's. I'm fairly sure, actually, that, that what we might see next year is something along the lines of what we see this year with uh or in past years as well with Oliveira versus Binder where Jack wins more races but Binder finishes the championship higher. Um I think that might be the take from it. Yeah. Um just one thing to throw out there while we're talking about Miller, Binder and uh and Jorge Martin in the podium that's worth mentioning. Uh we've been coming to Japan for Grand Prix races since nineteen sixty-three and today is the first day in history that there was no Japanese bike in the podium at a Japanese Grand Prix. If that's not a sign that times are a changing, I don't really know what it is. That is a huge thing for me. Um you know, for yeah, three, four companies that have dominated this championship. because uh, there are Kawasaki Grand five hundred Grand Prix podiums at, at Suzuka. Um, as well, but yeah, what what a stat! And one one Japanese bike in the top seven, right? If I'm not mistaken. Yeah, sounds about uh, right. Yes, the Honda of Mark Marquez was four. The Honda of Mark Marquez, and yet, yeah, and the next one was Welcome the Yamaha back. of Quattararo. And yet, you you have to think that Yamaha and Honda management are too upset about today, because one of them moved closer to another world title, and the other got their superstar back. And they really did which is a, a, probably a weird way to look at it, but it, it wasn't a bad day for the Japanese manufacturers, despite that stat, which is kind of weird. What is the best thing about this Mategi weekend that uh, we've just seen is there's been an HRC wildcard, and man alive, did it look cool. So it's all good. It's all fine. The world will continue to spin for another 12 months. <sighs> you say that, Toby, but they missed the ultimate trick. Every, every HRC-branded bike should have gold wheels. Uh, very true. It didn't have gold wheels. The wheels should always be yeah, gold. But it, it did look good, though, <laughs> didn't it? It looked good. It looked really good. And it was quite fast as well, which is even more impressive. Yeah. Tetsuka uh, Nagashima was quick. For, for those not in the know, uh, yeah, Tetsuka Nagashima, uh, Moto2 veteran, won, I think, one Moto2 race, maybe? Maybe a couple? I'm not, not entirely sure. Yeah. But, First race yeah. of 2020. Yeah. And then we went in a four-month break, and he never quite found his yeah. form again. But yeah, you know, he he's earned this one and he's been, you know, he's been doing some work for Honda and also I think endurance racing for them. Uh there's a big st- Honda storyline. One Suzuki R for them. With Lacuona and uh I don't remember. Sorry. Takahashi. Thank Kimi you. Takahashi. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh the big Honda so, sorry, motorcycle endurance racing is my thing. Yeah. Stop digging, the, Val. <laughs> the big Honda thing from this weekend is that we've seen we've seen our Mark Marquez again. And we've seen him, you know, just sort of the right way where you don't expect him to dominate next year. You don't really fear it, but you expect him to be really properly in the mix now because, I, mean, you know, the package is still not great. Again, this is Honda's best finish since May 1st, which was before the, the fourth surgery. Um, but he was really good all throughout the weekend. Really, really good. He had longevity in the race and obviously he had the... So that... It's good to see that Marquez thing of just being on another planet when the grip is a bit weird. It's it's good to see that hasn't gone. I'm honestly I'm not sure when we're going to see another rider who's this good at every level of grip. And it's it's just it's such a 
that maybe grew a little bit boring during his domination years, but now on weekends like this, when you see it and you're like, you know, the bike isn't so good anymore and Mark's still recovering to full fitness, but that that grip feel, that's still there. It's beautiful. It's an absolutely beautiful pole position. Loved it to bits. Um, spoke to him afterwards, after the race, and uh, asked him about, you know, so the, the ultimate Mark Marquez for me is, is 2019, the year that he was in the podium in every race. His worst finish was second. He was in the podium in every race, but won. And he won with the biggest ever points. Which he led and crashed which out. Which he led and crashed yeah. out of. Um, and which he won by the biggest ever winning points margin at the end of the season. And I asked, you know, is 2019 Mark coming back? And he very quickly said, well, there's two components now. There's the rider and the bike. The 2019 rider, he believes, can come back, which is fantastic news for the championship. And and for Mark personally, um, you know, one of the other questions I asked him over the weekend after the pole position lap was, does this mean that uh, the, the fourth surgery is a success? And he says, well, we already knew the fourth surgery wasn't a success. I wake up in the morning and I'm not in constant pain. So just to see him go in from that to being back at his you know, believing he's at his best mentally is is awesome. Um, an absolute fair play to the guy because no one wanted to see the the nightmare that he had going on beforehand. Um, but he, like I said, he split my my question in two, and he said that the other part of it now was the bike, and where we kind of always assumed that you know it was ninety percent rider talent, ten percent motorbike in the past. He says that with the arrival of aero with the arrival of wings with the, the the latest generation of michelin tires with just how competitive the MotoGP grid is right now where everyone's a champion um he says the bike plays a bigger role now um and he doesn't know if the honda's good enough to let him do what he used to do um but you know from a a, a sort of a non-partisan fan of the sport point of view a mark marquez who's dialed back a couple of clicks is probably just about the best thing imaginable because he's going to be wild and loose and fast and aggressive and fun but the others are going to be able to tag on to the back of him and he's yeah. not going to dominate the championship that sounds like um we're on the cards for an awesome 2023 to be honest yeah no Friday morning running, the freight took a little bit of a while, and it was all in the plan to come from Aragon. Um, there was just the Friday afternoon running, never mind the, the fact that it was wet. Um, do you think there's a future in that? Is 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 that an option for all of the Grand Prix? Less running? Do you think it ultimately made a difference come Sunday afternoon, Simon? It, it would only have made an, a difference come Sunday afternoon had Saturday not been wet. It might have made a difference in the end, but it's only because we lost a day to wet weather in the end. Um, in the end, the logistics plan worked really well, despite dodging a super typhoon to get the freight here. And I think we probably could have run on Friday morning if need be, but I, I get why they worked in that contingency. Um, but this is something that we've questioned in the past, and we've been given a categoric no it's never going to change because Dorna are at the end of the day, a company who make their money by selling TV rights and they don't want to sell one session, one morning of action less uh, a weekend. So no, we're, we're stuck with what we've got unless there are, you know, some weird exceptional circumstances. 
I'd love to know how much revenue is generated by FB1, the worst, least watchable session in human history every weekend. Can you imagine how many people in the UK, for example, were watch it, would have watched a Moto 3 FP1 at 3 a.m. on a on a Friday morning? Um, I have actually heard rumors in the past of like three-digit viewing figures, like that low. Yeah, that makes sense. That makes sense to me. I, 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 can, I can beat all of that. When we were doing Eurosport, Ron Ringuth was the, was the main commentator in German. And he was m- even more of a TV guy than a motorsports guy, if you follow. He had a great voice, had a great enthusiasm, but he was TV first and foremost rather than MotoGP like the rest of us. And he was always across the figures. Now, the penetration of Eurosport into Germany was something like 85%. This is kind of 20 years ago, which then was an enormous percentage. And Germany, you know, big population. Anyway, he got the numbers once of 125 Friday afternoon. Friday afternoon, this is, because we only did Friday afternoons, not Friday morning. And there was, I think he said there was something like less than 3,000 people watching when normally they'd have, you know, on race day, 400,000, 500,000 people watching. And he said, and he came up with a line. He just said, it would be cheaper to put everybody on 747 standing room only so they could come to Mategi because it would be cheaper to to take them to Mategi than do all the broadcast on the Friday. He was joking. But he wasn't. But you kind of know where he was coming from. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Look, I I love MotoGP and I and you know Moto Two and Moto Three too. But I I really hope all of you have better things to do on Friday afternoon. Honestly, morning, morning if morning you're in Europe and afternoon, yeah. both of yeah. those. Uh, I mean, honestly, I, I'm I'm on site and I have to admit I use Moto Two FP One to go and find people in the paddock. Because yeah, yeah it, it 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 is another discussion for another day. But it, are we, are they just going round in circles, burning hydrocarbons? Which in itself is a discussion that is being had, and we will need to have maybe over the winter. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Taka Nakagami had a terrifying crash at Aragon just seven days before his home Grand Prix at Mategi. Quite how he was able to get on his LCR Honda MotoGP bike, 300 horsepower, 158 kilos. He's trying to pull your arms out, let alone your hand that doesn't function properly. How in heaven's name did he even think about it, let alone get to the end of the Grand Prix? All right, well... Simon and I are both making faces, and well, how did he think about it? It's the first Japanese GP since 2019, so he felt like he had to be there, and nobody told him no. Um, somebody should have told him no, because I've not seen his hand. I'm not his doctor. I don't know. Maybe it's actually fine. Maybe it's a paper cut. But from Taka's words, um, here's what he said over the weekend. On Friday, I think after the running, he said that his glove was full of blood 
after the session. So there's just, you know, there's just an open wound seeping blood while he's riding a bike. So that's great. And then over the rest of the weekend, it got worse to the point where he said that a doctor who's been looking at his hand at over the course of the weekend said after Sunday's race that the situation with his fifth finger, one of the two injured fingers that were, I think, operated on already, was, in Taka's words, serious. So I don't know how to interpret that other than he may have done extra damage to his hand by riding this weekend in order to finish 29th or whatever. And again, this is this is not being disrespectful. Uh, he's hurt. Of course he was going to finish 29th. He's really hurt. He was really suffering. Um, I, even if you were to finish 10th, don't do that. Somebody, I, and it's not up to him because you can't expect him to, to stop himself. But somebody has to. Again, glove full of blood. What are we doing here? Come on. I agree. Yeah, Valley's right. Valley's right. It, 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 it. Somebody didn't stop Mark Marquez riding at Jerez four days after his operation back in July 2020. It's the same thing over again. The same people. The same people didn't stop Mark Marquez from riding four days after his operation at Hareth. And you would think that Honda management would have learned something, especially considering they've just signed Takanaka Kami to ride for them again next season. And yet, here we are. Um, to answer the how of your question, Toby, how he managed to ride is that he was pumped full of drugs that probably required a therapeutic use exemption to mean that he passed doping control afterwards to be able to use them and couldn't feel the damage being done to his hand in the process. Um, he told us on Friday that the surgeon had said that uh, 60% of the tendon in his hand, in his uh, right finger, little finger, was gone. Was gone? And then he went and did more damage, and it became gone, cut. And then he went and did more damage. So we're essentially in a situation where we have seen a rider so desperate to race in his home race that it may well cost him at best the use of his finger and maybe the finger as a whole. And no one in the championship has thought to step in and stop that, but instead has told him that he's a superhero for doing it. The The damage to his hand is so bad that um, he was pleased that they didn't have to skin graft the wound closed. That's how bad it is. That's what we're talking about here. Uh, and that's beyond the fact that the tendon is, is you know, hanging on by a, a literal thread. Um, writers, the, so none of this is a, anything against Taka. I need to say that. This is this is about the system, not the writer, because the job of the writer is to go and race. Um, but there has to be some sort of an emergency break in the system where it doesn't devolve all safety decisions to the writer. Um Taka's reputation is not the cleanest in MotoGP for someone who can be a bit loose and a bit aggressive and a bit, you know, he takes risks. We all saw the first corner at Barcelona earlier this year. And then they sent him out in track admitting that he couldn't feel his hand whenever he was doing frame braking control. Like, who didn't hear, who, who heard those comments and didn't think they should take him off track instantly. You get the feeling that, you know, you're past fit if you can... I know that's not the system. The system is different. But it, it seems to often equate to me, like, if if you can do a lap time, then you're fit. 
Taka could do a lap time this weekend. On Friday, on Saturday and Sunday, he was gone. But on, on Friday, he could do a lap time. But, and it, look, I'm, I'm just, I'm just going to read off the quote from the, from the transcript. Uh, we were, after the race, the doctor checked again, said that it's pretty bad. It's quite serious. So we need to think about to see whether we need a surgery. So that's another surgery or not. Or it's okay like this. We can live like this or not. It's quite bad. I hate this. I hate all of this. All of it. I hate it a lot. I, I hated listening to it. I hate thinking about it now. Uh, please keep the man out of Buriram and let him heal his hand and never do this again. No home race is worth this. If this was his final home race, it would not be worth it. And it's not even his final home race. No, it's not. This is the, this is the same story that's been going on in motorcycle racing for 20, 30, 40, 50 years. Uh, I'm just rather surprised that it's going on in 2022 uh, we all did silly things when we were young and we just needed a mature person to say and they did at times go don't do that because you'll burn yourself don't do that because the tree will fall on your head when i was a tree surgeon all those kind of things you know and ah, oh, just uh, you know if he was battling for the championship and all those other separate discussions Maybe I just I just always think Kevin Schwantz. You know, he regrets now riding when his wrists were so badly damaged, and he now regrets that. Um, but of course, you can't see it at the time because you're just dazzled with, uh, at least for Kevin, being at the sharp end. But for Taka, love him as we do, he's not at the sharp. And and here's the thing that I'm trying to word very carefully what I'm about to say here. Um, the people who passed him fit are the people who performed the surgery on him uh, because the MotoGP medical team come from the the Drexus Hospital in Barcelona and his surgery was performed by uh, Dr. Xavier Mir at that clinic. And I know that obviously the, the local circuit doctor has a say in that fit-on-fit process, but I think more times than not, we've seen that they defer to the, the resident experts in motorcycle medicine, which are those doctors who perform the surgery and i don't know if that's a system that i want to continue surgery was clearly good because he was fast on friday but <laughs> i mean yeah but 24 <laughs> laps lap on lap yeah. or another animal yeah. in the dry yeah. in the dry yeah. and 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 a crash on the same hand again oh, no. don't he did yeah he did Okay. Yeah. It, it, look, it's it's everything else aside. Regardless of when he had the surgery, regardless of when the damage was, etc., etc., etc. I don't think it would be an unfair punishment to anyone in motorcycle racing if we introduced a rule that says if you have an open bleeding wound, yeah. you cannot ride a motorbike. Absolutely. I, and you know, it's not that long since we've seen Aaron Canet have to pull out of a race weekend because of the massive nosebleeds he was getting every time he got in the bike after smashing his head off the dash of a car in a car crash. Um, if you're bleeding, you shouldn't be racing. Plain and simple. That's not. That's not. That's that shouldn't be a controversial opinion, should it? I don't think so. No. But it's you know, it's what they do in football, and motorcycle racing loves to think about how yeah, you know, yeah. football are pansies. But in this case, yeah, um, yeah. yeah. You, you, you've got a lot of controversial opinions, Simon, but that's not one of them. So, uh, you know. Someone someone also asked me over the weekend if, uh, if what did I expect regarding concussions, that they get a concussion check every time they bang their head. <laughs> what sport would ever do something <laughs> that crazy? And I was like, well, every sport apart from <laughs> MotoGP. But that's enough. That's off topic. Yeah. Uh, 
Juan Mir, 2020 world champion, was unable to ride with Suzuki, so it was Takuya Tsuda who jumped in uh, on then now the uh, the number 85 bike. It had a massive engine failure. Surely a rod went through the block with the amount of oil and, and flame that was pouring out of the back of it with uh, about half of the race still to go. Uh, very unusual to see an engine let go like that in this day and age. It used to be things that we used to see in the the embryonic days of MotoGP, but that was back uh, 20 years ago. Uh, unusual, but a sad end to Suzuki's current MotoGP era at home in, in Japan. I feel like I'm sticking a little bit of a pin in your balloon, Toby, because uh, contacts of Suzuki will not tell me what happened, but all they'll tell me is it wasn't the engine. Um, so I don't know. Oh what- come on! <laughs> no, 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 no. I've bu- I've built and blown up more engines, maybe than you, Simon. And I'm telling you this: uh, that, that when there's that much flame, there is oil where it shouldn't be, and oil should be on the inside, not the outside. <laughs> there was definitely oil where it shouldn't be. Guys, it's it's clear it was the 2023 prototype that they're really hard at work on. So yeah, someone someone yeah. sent me a tweet, and I, I'm sorry, I can't remember who it was, um, but it's genuinely one of the funniest, if not saddest things I've read all day, to say that watching Takuma Tsuda's bike uh, on fire at the side of the track was the perfect metaphor for Suzuki's current MotoGP project because they've taken the perfect MotoGP bike and burnt it to the ground. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, not funny, but yeah, yeah. yeah there's an irony in that. Isn't yeah. there? there is an irony in that. So then, Fabio Quattararo has a lead of 18 points ahead of Peko Banyaya. Alicia Spargaro is in third position in the championship. He is 25 points back of Fabio Quattararo. Bastianini, we've mentioned him already in this podcast that he's got a bit of a shout of this championship, but he is 49 points back. There are 100 points still in play at the remaining four Grand Prix. They are Thailand, Australia, Malaysia, and then Valencia back in Spain in Europe. 16 down, four still to go. Keep in touch with the-race.com for all of your MotoGP news. I won't be here next week. I'll be working in the Moroccan desert. So Matt Beer will be back and you will be in his safe hands. In the meantime, from Val Simon and myself, Toby, arigato. The Athletic.